Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 512 with my guest Joe List. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, I'm not a therapist and this is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling, but it is meant to uh, give you uh, a place to sit and think about why the fuck we're still alive. Is that a little too heavy? It is It is a heavy, heavy week. This is November 5th. It's two days after the election. Still haven't decided who is going to fuck up our country. And uh, I need to know. I need to know who is going to be the final nail in uh, Rome's coffin. Oh, I've been binge-watching... Um, the stuff about the Nexium cult. Uh, there's actually two of them, one on HBO called Vow and another one on Stars called Seduced. And I finished the one on HBO and I, without spoiling anything for anybody who hasn't watched it, it's it's about a guy that wants to bring volleyball to prisons <laughs> in a roundabout way. And it it poses a lot of questions, you know, is... Is someone considered criminally insane if they have unlimited resources and still choose to live in Albany? What's it like as a young woman growing up in the shadow of a famous mother with half an accent? Who should be held responsible for a cult's musical numbers? Should we be afraid of all acronyms? Would Jesus have tried to hit on his apostles if he had had a blow dryer? It's worth checking out. And, you know, the the thing about cults that really got me thinking is, in many ways, our society of materialism and capitalism is is a cult. And it's why you see so many people go nuts when they get everything materially that they want, but they, they have no spiritual life. They have no goal outside of their their own ego and their own power. And uh, it's... You know, not that I'm against capitalism, but when that is someone's highest goal is just the pursuit of capitalism at the expense of everything else. It's a people people wind up acting like uh, people do that lead cults. It becomes all about power and manipulation, and they can never ever get enough. One of my favorite guests from the podcast is uh, Jordan Harbinger, and he has a show 
oddly enough, called The Jordan Harbinger Show. Some really fascinating guests. You get some some great people. And one of the guests you had is Dr. Jen Eberhard. Yeah, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt is a researcher over at Stanford, and she's just brilliant. She actually did an experiment that shows that if you are, if you look like your standard issue sort of white dude, it takes people, regular people and police both, longer to see that you are armed and a threat. So they'll show like a photo of a white guy who looks like me with a gun, you know, in his waistband. It takes longer to. De- to detect that gun and to see that I'm a threat. And then if somebody is darker skinned and they are unarmed and not threatening, it takes longer for the brain to see that that person is not armed and not a threat. So that's just one of many things going on in the brain. And in this episode with her uh, 399 of the Jordan Harbinger show, we talk about what's going on in the brain that creates and maintains bias, how bias can alter what we feel, can affect what we see, just like we talked about. And bias is actually contagious. We've evolved bias. It's not necessarily the product of racism. It's an evolutionary thing. But it's actually something that we can share and give to others, which is kind of horrifying if you think about it. Yeah, fascinating and depressing. Is that mm-hmm. is yes. that the, the quote you like to use for the Jordan Harbinger show? Yeah. Fascinating and depressing. Yes, fascinating and depressing and horrifying all at the same time. And that and then describes I'll, you like, personally. Psychology today. It does. Yeah, it's really a good fit. That's why I named it the Jordan Harbinger Show. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thank you. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com. Uh, if you've never tried online therapy, uh, I highly recommend it. I checked in with my therapist Donna this last week and uh, sometimes I don't realize what I'm going through until we start talking because I have a way of numbing myself and just telling myself oh whatever it is that you're thinking about you know just push it off to the side and I think I've been been going through a little bit of a professional crisis and you know feeling like having trouble navigating where what the next chapter of the podcast looks like uh, am i achieving all the potential creative pursuits that i that i want to or am i resting on my laurels or am i being too hard on myself and she she really does a great job of helping me sort through all that stuff so uh, if you're interested in checking out it i'll go to betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash metal part so they know you came from this podcast and then uh, just fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor they feel is a good fit for you they'll pair you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's good good thing for you and um, you need to be over 18 and they are licensed in all 50 states and you can get 10% off your first month. Betterhelp.com slash mental. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mere Muse. And she writes, My husband just told me in the car that he doesn't understand why I'm so upset this morning. We are driving to my dad's funeral. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry we need to be with people i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies maybe well, listen thanks people. for coming in <laughs> i am here with joe list and uh he's a comedian uh you're based out of new york and Joe also has a podcast called uh, Mindful Metal Jacket, and I just listened to the most recent episode with you and Ian uh, Fidance. Fidance, yeah. Yeah. Really great, open, honest, vulnerable conversation about anxiety and meds and all kinds of other stuff. And your intro, I very much related to your self-flagellating <laughs> and uh, second-guessing of yourself. Um, so welcome. 
Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I love talking about all this stuff. Uh, where are you from originally, Joe? I grew up in Massachusetts, uh, Whitman, Massachusetts, which is uh, south of Bo- about 35 minutes south of Boston, right next to Brockton, Massachusetts. Have you ever heard of Brockton, Massachusetts? No, no. So, so you're just mildly racist. Uh, yeah, just a just a touch, just a little. As you get further piece. from Southie, then you the the <laughs> racism begins to dissipate. Yeah, exactly. That's how we try to do it. It's it's like a zoning thing. <laughs> uh, where's a good place to start? Let's let's talk about what uh, it was like growing up as a kid. What was kind um, of the emotional vibe in your family and inside yourself? Boy. We're, we're just jumping right in here. My God. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's hard. It felt like um, everything feels normal when you're a kid and just, you know, um, looking back now, maybe it was very uh, s- stressful, I guess. Um, I've always felt really, really anxious and um, insecure and fearful um, ever since I can remember as a kid. But it also felt... Um, pretty uneventful relatively which is what made me feel so um something was wrong with me because there was no my parents were together they weren't violent there was no real violence uh, in my life and no real abuse and no divorce and no death and so it felt pretty regular suburban you know blue collar you know two kids two adults two parents um, but I, my, my personal feeling was always that of fear and anxiety, certainly. Uh, you're a sober guy. How long have you been sober? Uh, I've been sober for about seven and a half years, a little more than seven and a half. Eight, end of December will be eight years. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, obviously, as you went to support groups, and I'm assuming that yes. uh, you, you go to support groups, uh, some of the things that you mentioned that were in your inner life as a kid uh, also overlap with the brain and the emotions of an untreated alcoholic. And so uh, talk about when you started doing your self-discovery and support groups, um, what, what that was like. Well, um, I don't know. It was sort of, that was very helpful to realize um, that fear had been sort of, driving a lot of my decisions and, and choices and behavior and the fear of um, fitting in and fear of death and belonging and um, wanting to be liked and people pleasing, all of those things that I wasn't aware of. And when I was actively drinking and, and you know, going kind of wild, I didn't realize, I thought everything was happening to me. I thought the world was against me. Show business was against me. My friends were against me. I didn't realize how much of it I was creating on my own. The, um, the typical piece of shit the world revolves around. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's still my favorite thing to uh, think about is that that ego and self-hatred coexisting at the same time that I'm, I'm a piece of shit and every single person's talking about it right now. You know, it, it, it occurred to me one day that they're really both uh, just two sides of the same coin, which is self-obsession. You know, anything right. to keep us thinking about ourselves, doesn't matter where, whether we're the king or the pauper in our brain, it's just a way to become engrossed in, in self. Yeah, completely. And that's, that's the um, a thing I still struggle with now, even in um, sobriety and in meditation and in all that stuff. And... Um, I was just thinking about that the other day. I was, you know, even when I worry about the state of society and future generations with whatever politically or war or famine or climate change, it's still about me and affecting my personal right. oh, that's life. That's so funny. I so relate I'm, to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, there's people that are in disasters right now. I'm not even thinking about them. I'm like, oh my God, is New York City going to be underwater? Because that's where I live. Right. right. You know? When when the civil war bread line forms, how far at the back of the line do you picture yourself? I picture myself the very last person just doing the over the shoulder look. And, yes. and when, what is this? Yeah. Um, and, and are people actively trying to stab you while you're doing that? I feel that way all the time. I think everyone's about to stab me hundred percent of the time. <laughs> uh, when did 
anxiety start to become something that was unmanageable for you? Unmanageable. It's it's hard. Like I just again, like I didn't realize growing up. I think in the eighties and nineties, people didn't uh, know as much or talk about it as much. Then nobody. It was a long, long time before someone was like, "Oh, you have anxiety." or panic. I remember I was in my early 20s is when I first started having panic attacks, really serious panic attacks, um, almost daily for a while where I would be on the ground shaking and, you know, um, I would shake real bad and I, I would have a hard time breathing and I'd have wow. like kind of tunnel vision and um, it would be horrible. And I think I was 23 or 24 around that time when it started to get completely out of control and um i took going to therapy really helped that but even then the thing that helped me in therapy was was someone going you have panic you're having panic attacks and like giving me some you know a piece of paper that talked about panic attacks and for me going back to that self-centered thinking i always felt like i was the only one experiencing things i always say i feel like i had joe list disease and once someone says Oh, that's this thing. You immediately re feel relieved of it. Oh, okay. That's I just have a thing that some people have, and so that helped. And of course, it came back later. Um, and and how did you deal with it after having that perspective that it wasn't Joe List disease? Well, at first it was just okay. It's anxiety. I'm not dying because that's what would happen when I was having anxiety attacks. Is it felt like I was dying? I thought something was seriously wrong with me, and once it was like, no, there's nothing really seriously wrong with you. You're just having anxiety. That kind of helped it subside for a while. I would still have anxiety, but I wouldn't have panic. And yeah. then, of course, it came back again a few times later. And it would always come back in, in, it wouldn't just be one panic attack. It would be a panic attack every day for a few weeks. That, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it was... It was uh, horrendous. I mean, it was really scary. And most people don't have panic attacks like that. So right. no one knows really what you're talking about. Like people would give me a paper bag to breathe in. And, and, and my family was trying to be helpful, but they'd be like, let's think about baseball. You got a ball game coming up? Or, you know, let's think about a, a, what's, what's fun to look forward to. You're getting and, a nice workout, Joe. You're, you're, <laughs> you're breaking into a sweat. That's good. You're flushing out toxins. Yeah, yeah, get that, get that blood pumping. But it, people that don't know about it, it's hard to really um, help if you don't really know what's going on exactly. And people would say, "Yeah, just you got to relax," and that would make it even worse. And at the time, I didn't realize that trying to stop a panic attack and stop anxiety is is not helpful. It's the opposite. It just makes it worse. It makes you sink worse into those things. Because you're, you're still trying to control something that is largely out of your control rather than kind of uh, moving, you know, with the flow of it and observing it. Yeah. And I think it's all about acceptance. I've found everything that's helped me, therapy, support groups, uh, you know, meditation, it all kind of comes back to accepting and letting go. And so that's the thing that finally helped me years later and just a few years ago, a couple of years ago with anxiety and panic attack is accepting that I'm having a panic attack and just letting go and going, oh, okay, this is anxiety. My hands are shaking. I'm having, I have trouble breathing. And it sounds so counterintuitive, but sort of leaning into it, accepting it, understanding it allows it to slow down and stop. Are there things uh, that trigger it? Well, I haven't had one in a long time there there's certain things that trigger the for me it's the idea of or the um the possibility of confrontation like i'm a comedian so if i'm on if someone's on stage before me my opener's on stage and i can see somebody's drunk or heckling or the i'll start having an argument in my head and going this is going to be an issue this is going to be a problem and that'll that doesn't put me into panic anymore but it puts me where a panic attack used to begin. I have the tools now to kind of understand that's just anxiety, but it sends me into that, the lowest level of where, if it was a chart, it would start going up. Um, any kind of confrontation can get me pretty anxious still. Would you ever have a full-blown panic attack while you were on stage? 
Yeah, I've had that uh, a couple is, times. What is that like? And how did the did, was the audience aware? I've I've had panic attacks on stage. Um, I had one on television. I was doing a set on Conan, and I was having just horrible anxiety. And it was happened in a time period where I was having anxiety attacks pretty regularly, every few days, and in certain situations. And what happens with anxiety and panic is you become afraid of where you might have the next one. So you start to go, oh my God, what if I'm on stage and I have a panic attack? What if I'm on TV and I have a panic attack? What if I'm a so-and-so or wherever? You think of the worst place where you might have it and that kind of triggers it. And I was having just this horrible anxiety right as it was time for me to go on stage. Oh, and I had God. done a few late night spots before and I was always afraid of that, but it had never happened. <clears throat> and this time it was, it was happening. And the audience, I don't think anyone really noticed. And I was sh shaking and really scared and I kind of fumbled a line, but I got through it. And it's funny because that actually helped me a lot. I had another one at the St. Louis Funny Bone. It was a Saturday night sold out. Well, that's just common. Um, that, that's just uh, you making sense of the world. <laughs> um, was this Westport? Well, I guess South South County uh, closed some years ago, so I assume it was the Westport funny. Moment. It was it was Westport, yeah, yeah, and it was like a sold out, packed Saturday night, and it was horrible. It lasted almost the whole set. Where you start to go, you have this war with your brain, where you're like, I think it's getting better, and the idea of thinking, oh, I think it's getting better, makes it worse again. It it starts to come back. It was and. It's almost what, like paying attention to a stalker. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, so what, what helped, ultimately having, with, through therapy and having a panic attack on TV and at a show, what, it actually was the best thing that could have happened to me because the show ended up being good. I still did well because I still was able to say all the jokes. And my therapist helped me because he's like, that's amazing. Your worst fear came true. The worst thing that could possibly happen is a panic attack on TV or while headlining. And it was fine. You were fine. And so that really took a lot of the teeth out of it is you kind of have this thing of, okay, worst case scenario, I'll shake a bunch. I'll still be able to talk. I'll survive. And you realize, oh, it's just fear. It, uh, it, all it is is fear and, and thoughts really. And it, it manifests physically in that I'm shaking, but that's all right. So I'm just shaking. You know, it's a little embarrassing for people to see your hands shaking so bad, but, you know, they're still there. So you uh, clearly have not imagined somebody leaping out of the crowd stabbing you. That I've, you've, I've you've, thought. You've overlooked that possibility, yeah. which is very real. Yeah, I've thought of that a few times, um, but... That's, again, something I can't really do, but I do study uh, jujitsu and mixed martial arts to some degree, so maybe I'd be able to, you know, tap and have them not stab me. Um, uh, and thank you for listening to The Art of Stabbing with uh, Paul Gilmartin. I'm going to try to bring that up a third time uh, before, we, before we wrap this up. Uh, what are the, 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 actually, before we go to what the struggles are today, uh, let's talk about the the bottom that you hit before you decided, man, I need help for my drinking. Well, I feel like I had a few, I had a, <laughs> I had a few bottoms and then I hung out at the bottom for a while. Um, Is there a cover charge at the bottom? No, <laughs> completely uh, free. I mean, all you have to, it's just, it costs your uh, dignity. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. So the first time i mean when i finally got sober this time it was just um it was just you know sick of tired of being sick and tired like right. I, I had been drinking for a decade and my career was not doing well at all i had no money and i had no my relationships were kind of terrible and the last sort of thing for me was weird it sounded it doesn't sound um, all that crazy because uh, I have crazier drinking stories, war stories, but I kept drinking. But the last thing on this sobriety was I was looking forward to going home for Christmas back to Massachusetts. And I went home and every Christmas gift I got was alcohol. 
And oh, I realized, my God. That just, is fantastic. It was just all boo. We got you, Captain Morgan. Here's some nips, and here's the thing. And, and I just thought, boy, this is wild. I'm just the drunk. I'm the alcoholic guy. And um, I was so depressed. And then the thing that – one thing that happened was my brother-in-law, who I love, his father had just passed away a couple days earlier. And I made a couple cracks about it, thinking, hey, we're buddies. I was like, yeah, because your dad or something. And he just looked so sad and, and like empty and, and just disappointed. And he said, he went, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? And I remember thinking, ah, I don't know. I'm avoiding and, feeling. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. It just felt like I remember just hurting somebody I really cared about and just hurting his feelings on Christmas and just going, yeah, I don't know. And it felt like this metaphorical thing where he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And, um, and then I thought I got to quit and it had been on my mind for years that I'm going to have to quit. And I had tried to quit before and I had even gone, uh, you know, to support groups before and it just didn't stick. I didn't, I thought these people are nuts. I don't need this. And then I went back to New York and was like, I got to quit. And then of course I got, you know, drunk that night and drank all night that night. And then, um, my friend who doesn't drink, but he's not an alcoholic. He's never really drank. He gave me one of those online tests you know you might be an alcoholic thing and you know and there's an old joke that if someone's giving you that test you're an alcoholic you don't even need the test but um and then i you know i got 26 out of 28 of those and they were like good if for you, said, you. Good if, for you, you. Said, if you said yes to five you might be an alcoholic i'm like jeez i fucking killed it so um and then i had this conversation i always talk about this because it's so funny to me I was making a case of why I should keep drinking and he was making a case why I should stop. And I said, all right, but I finally, I felt like I had checkmate. I said, what about when I'm at a bar or a party and I just hate everybody there? What do I do then? And he said, you go home. And it really was like this moment of like clarity where I'm like, I never even thought of that. I could just not be at a bar. And um, that was the next day, I was like, I kind of had this moment of like, that's it. I'm quitting drinking. And I made a list of everybody I knew that was sober. And I was lucky. My girlfriend, now wife at the time, she was an alcoholic in recovery already. We were together. I was out drinking still, and she was in recovery. And um, so that was really helpful. So I had somebody really close, and I had friends that were sober. And I, I'm a comedian, so it, I mean, half the comics are alcoholics. So... That was helpful, and that for me. may be a low bar, low ballpark figure. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a large percentage. So I had friends, and what helped me was I didn't drink till I was out of high school, which was pretty late. And I had a great time in high school. I was very popular and and an athlete, and I I did well. And so I thought I've lived like this before, and so that was that helped me be like I'll just be that guy again. And so that was helpful, and then. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the best thing that I've ever done. How did your relationship change with your wife once you started going to support groups and I'm assuming doing some work on yourself and reexamining your perspective on life and how you interact with people? Well, it was, it was really helpful. I mean, First of all, she was thrilled that I wasn't going to be drinking anymore. And she did, She never put it to me or an ultim, ultimatum or whatever like that. Um, and, and even when I said I was quitting, she kind of went, oh, okay, great. You know, she, we'll see about that. But she had said later that she's like, we weren't going to last much longer just because um, I was pretty good at keeping drinking in our relationship separate. So, you know, she would have to deal with me just kind of coming home drunk, but I was never a a real, you know, vicious, fuck you, or, any, you know, I was always nice. I was just more insecure. I'd be like, you hate me. Everybody hates me. I was that kind of guy. And um, so, but it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have lasted. We certainly wouldn't still be together now. I mean, I might be dead now, but um, the relationship improved immensely quickly because I started to see how self-centered I had been in a lot of situations and also just, it's hard to even truly pay attention or be present in conversations and in relationships when you're drinking the way I was. And 
self um, self obsessed, which you know, as clearly you know, is is one of the roots of untreated alcoholism. And it's funny because when we're in our untreated disease, we think that beating ourselves up or hating ourselves is some form of discipline that is making amends for our behavior with other people. And it's such a lazy, selfish way of, quote, doing something about our drinking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I always felt like I would just say to everybody, "Ah, I'm a piece of shit. Ah, I'm the worst. And it did. It felt like that was somehow helping or making people. I'm like, if I let them know that I'm, I realize I'm a bad person or I did something bad, then that's fine. That's enough. And uh, that's, you know, obviously not, not the case, but it made sense in my head. What are the, the struggles today? Um, today it's still, um, I still have anxiety. I don't have panic like I did before, but certainly anxiety is something I still deal with and, and believing my thoughts that's and future tripping. I do a lot of that and get caught in a loop of, Oh my God, I'm not gonna be able to do this. And, and thinking I'm not going to be able to handle things and just my mind gets, um, out of control easily. And basically it's just believing my thoughts. And I have this little mantra. I say, fear is just fear. And my thoughts are not reality. And that helps. And certainly meditation, but also slipping back into that self-centered thinking. And I have to go, Oh, I'm just thinking about me. And that's why I'm, that's why I'm dealing with this. My friend, uh, Jack has a great thing that really helps me. He said, Anytime I'm suffering, if I'm really angry or upset or mad or bitter or resentful, I ask myself, what am I trying to control? And that is really helpful to me because that's what it really is, is I'm trying to control something that I can't control, whether it be society or the weather or somebody's feelings to me or somebody's reaction to something I've done or said or financial, whatever it is. Um, so that's definitely a struggle. I can go into dark places still or be you know just to be self-centered asshole and i gotta be mindful of those things it's it's almost like throwing a reality tantrum yeah yeah exactly you know one of the litmus tests for for me or the barometers of how i'm doing spiritually is how i react in traffic you know do i do i take it personally that road construction is you know at a shitty time of the day, in my opinion, or whatever. And most of the time I can just go, you know, it's not personal. Maybe uh, the universe needs me to be a half hour late or, you know, that person that's driving erratically, maybe they need to get in an accident to wake up and, and see that they're filled with fear and you know, whatever. But it's ultimately none of my business. Uh, it's just how I conduct myself that that really matters but it's so hard in that moment when the rage just fills your face and it's red hot and you just want to teach that person a lesson yeah and the hard part is it feels good i mean that's what, what's weird is is going into those places strangely feels good again it's like it's um it's counterintuitive to be accepting and peaceful. My natural thing is to be like, yeah, I knew this. I, 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 I hope for someone to upset me so I can be angry at them. It feels good to go, ah, son of a... And, um, the, the gasoline that Facebook runs on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Our whole society seems to be running on it these days. So, um, yeah, staying away from those things is really... And getting outside of my head and, and, and thinking about other people is is really um, a challenge, but that's the best way for me to be and live. So are you making your living as a podcaster or as a stand-up comedian or both? Well, right now through COVID, I, I mean, it's both. Um, there's some gigs now. I'm doing Pre, only... Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, it was more... It was a combination, but stand-up more than podcasting. And now... Post-COVID, it's more podcasting than stand-up because I'm still not doing indoor shows. A lot of people are. I just haven't done that yet. I've been, but there's a bunch of great outdoor shows, but I'm in New York, so there's, those are starting to slow down a little bit. But um, it's a little bit, um, I almost said COVID, 
that's all my mind. It's a, it's a little bit podcast and a little bit stand up. I'm making zero money from COVID, but yeah, mostly um, podcasts these days. Talk about what it felt like when the quarantine was put into effect, uh, the stand up comic in you. Because I would imagine, because sometimes I, you know, I stopped doing stand up 10 years ago or nine years ago. And sometimes I picture what it would be like if, if I, the bulk of my income was from doing that and suddenly I couldn't do it. Yeah, it was scary. I mean, I felt so grateful to have a, a podcast that was making some money and I had some savings, uh, which was nice. Um, it was scary. I mean, like it was definitely anxiety inducing, but I did have my, again, like being sort of actively sober and, and a meditator and in therapy, all of those tools helped a lot. And it was strangely like, oh, this is what I've been training for. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, it's one day at a time. Let me try to control what I can control, uh, accept, and let me see. There's people certainly doing worse than me. I should try to reach out to them and help them in any way. Um, so that was helpful. And strangely, there was something strangely nice about it in a way. And I feel bad because I know people's lives have been destroyed because of this stuff. But, but enough about them. But um, who cares about them? But I was on the road. I'm a road dog. So I'm on the road 40, 45 weeks a year. And September through December, I did every week, like 16 weeks in a row, gone for four, home for three days, back out for three days. And so my schedule coming up in the end of March and April, I was going to go, I was going, leaving my house for 22 days. I was going to Australia, LA, Austin, Boston, Vegas, maybe one other city, or maybe it was those. But so that was, I was dreading it. I was like, I can't believe, I'm going to be, oh my God, these flights. And so it was sort of strange to have a nice break from that and a break from the stress of trying to come up with material and dealing with hecklers and dealing with travel and getting off and on planes. And part of it really helped me to kind of settle down my, my life mentally and physically. So there was some nice things about it, but also the feeling of out of control of how, how deadly is this? How is, you know, how are my parents going to be okay? What's going to be financially? What's going to happen? There was so much unknown about it, obviously. I mean, there's still quite a bit that's unknown, but it was pretty scary. And I'm in New York and in Queens, and that was where it was the worst. So that was nerve wracking. Um, that that so, must have been terrifying being in, in Queens. Yeah, there was definitely, I mean, I just mean in general. Yeah, yeah it's, um, I mean, in general, it's, I'm in a pretty nice neighborhood, but um, no, there was definitely moments where I was like, this uh, is the, we're just going to get it. I mean, I definitely remember thinking like, we'll have it. And then we had chicken soup and oatmeal and the whole thing. And, and slowly it felt like Wizard of Oz, where you slowly start coming out of, you know, the, wherever you were hiding and be like, I think this is all right, actually. Uh. So other than the anxiety, what, what are some of the struggles today? Um, boy, I mean, outside of anxiety, I'm not sure there are any. I mean, I feel like my problems are all anxiety and mentally and, and created. I mean, it's a little hard with stand-up trying to figure out the right thing to do. Should I do indoor shows? Should I not do, again, this basically is anxiety again um, and figuring out the best way to make a living while trying to be, you know, safe and, and not putting other people in danger. But um, I don't know. I do feel like most of my issues and most people's issues are all mentally uh, mental related. I mean, I understand people. I am fortunate to have a podcast that makes money and I've done some stand up. So that's not too big of a concern, but it is mostly um, anxiety related. I hate to make it sound like I'm just killing it here and I'm on top of the world. Um, but for the moment, I mean, I guess I feel we're doing a mental health podcast. So I feel. Uh, yeah, it does not there. sound like you're bragging, Joe. It sounds like you're saying, hey, I work to develop these tools and I got put in the game and I'm using them. And uh, yeah, reality's rough, but uh, I'm coping. 
Yeah, thank you. You worded it much better than I could. I was really backpedaling there. Um, but no, I mean, I feel good. I do feel grateful. I'm like, I have my health. My wife and I get along well. And I know a lot of people don't. And we don't have a kid to worry about here or anything. Um, so it really is just sort of one day at a time and trying to do the best work I can do wherever I can do it safely. What is it like doing stand-up with the country being so divided politically, uh, either for you or friends of yours? Do you have any kind of snapshots you can paint for me of what it's like out there uh, as a, as a stand-up comic with the country so divided? It's, it's weird. I mean, I don't do, as far as stand-up, I don't really do anything certainly not overtly political and but these days it is weird i mean people are just feel like they're trying to find out any angle on how you vote who you are what you're thinking and people on both sides are on high alert for any kind of buzzword or virtue signal of wait uh, i think that sounded like he might be trump <laughs> so it is like a thing of like or or, or vice versa you know so I try to, I mean, I walk out and I'm a, you know, a skinny guy with glasses from New York. So I, I, people assume, assume I'm a liberal. And then I say whatever thing that might not be PC and people are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, so it does, but that's also, again, anxiety. Maybe a lot of people aren't thinking that some certainly are. Um, so that's on my mind immediately i'm like do people hate me for being white or do people hate me for being a liberal i mean it is in my mind of which these all people all hate me and again that comes back to that self-centered anxiety i always assume everybody hates me in general um, until proven otherwise exactly so and even then i'm still like i don't know i think you're full of shit i think my wife likes me but i'm not sure um but that is definitely um, nerve-wracking and people are wondering if you're going to say something political or, or politically. Uh, and I get people thanking me after shows for like, thanks for not mentioning Trump. We don't even want to... Even people that, you know, hate Trump don't want to hear about Trump. People just don't want to hear about you know, that stuff anymore I think. Um, so I get compliments sometimes from people, thanks for not talking politics. We appreciate it. And if you do mention anything, people go, I liked everything except that one thing you said. And you're like, what? That was about grocery stores or something. Yes. Have you know? uh, any of your fellow comics had uh, stories or you know incidents that were like brutal? Yeah, I mean, brutal, I don't know. But there's definitely people can be passive aggressive after the show or try to tell you what's what. I don't know anyone that's had anything too serious that comes to mind but um there's definitely stories out there but i don't have them off the top of my head but i know it, it can get dicey for sure um, uh, any like during the show or is it mostly after the show i think it's usually after the show i feel like hanging around or you know maybe someone yells something out or whatever i mean i had a guy at a show in texas and he had you know the camouflage hat and cut off you know, MAGA shirt in the front row, but he loved it. You know, he was, he was loving it. And so it feels like, Oh God, is this going to be an issue? This guy looks crazy. But you know, for me anyways, I stick to just my material and, and he loved it. So I don't know anyone that's had, had any really serious issues, but there's definitely, you feel the threat for <laughs> sure. Yeah. And again, from both sides, um, but I did, now that I think about it, I'm like, I, there was a guy recently, I told this story on my podcast, there's a guy who did sort of some really irreverent stuff at a place out in Brooklyn. And, you know, he said, whatever, he was making race jokes and uh, gay jokes. And it started to get pretty, um, pretty hairy. Yeah, yeah, hostile. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of like, get him off the stage. This guy sucks. And I think he might have gotten banned from the venue. I mean, that one, but that was fun to me because... I know him and I know what he does and I knew the crowd. So I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I'm like, this is going to be, this is going to be fun. Yeah. Comics love watching each other bomb, not on something important like TV or stuff like that, but it, watching a friend bomb at a one nighter is a belly laugh that uh, almost hurts. 
Oh, it's the best. Yeah, when you see someone going down, I mean, it's it's really really fun, and especially if it's like you said, it's low stakes, and you know it's not their fault. It's not that they're bad. They're not failing. The situation is just terrible, and so you're like, this is great. <laughs> uh, anything else you'd like to talk about before we uh, wrap up? Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I mean I feel good just talking about this stuff because it's funny just. Saying it out loud helps me so much because it reminds me of to do these things. It's so much, I'm always so much better when someone else is dealing with anxiety or, or is an alcoholic or whatever, because you, you can go, oh, I know how to handle this. And then it's so clear to you. But when it's you, you just lose your mind. So even just having the conversation is, is so helpful to me. Well, that's, that's awesome. Uh, people can find your podcast, uh, mindful metal jacket and any other social media or youtube stuff you want to share with them yeah i got a comedy special on youtube it's called i hate myself ironically uh or not ironically it's called i hate myself and it's youtube and it's an hour special and um i'm really proud of it it came we shot it right before everything shut down march 2nd was when we recorded it and it just came out a couple months ago and uh, it's got over a million views so oh dude congrats that's yeah. awesome man but thanks yeah i'm pumped well, Joe, thanks for uh, making time and sharing all that stuff. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Probably a good thing that we recorded that before the election because I think we might have gone down the rabbit hole of uh, anxiety and existential dread. Many, many thanks to, to Joe. Um, this episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. If you guys haven't subscribed to this podcast, that's a really great way to... Help us non-financially doesn't cost you anything. Um, there's all different kinds of ways you can support the podcast. If you go to our donate page on our website, metalpod.com, uh, you can find out different ways to support it because uh, we can always use more support. Let's dive into some surveys. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, if I don't come up with a witty name, I'm afraid my survey won't get paid attention to. Uh, she writes, I rarely get nightmares. I just woke up from a night w nightmare where my mom was bullying me about my views on politics and parenting. In the dream, she was trying to manipulate me and even attempted to use my own kids against me. With every new nightmare scenario, my brain concocted about how my mother could attempt to manipulate me and cause me to react poorly, my dream self responded with an impressive amount of self-control, firm boundaries, and compassion for my mother. Not sure if this counts as awfulsome, as awesome, or if it just means I'm only recovering, quote, in my dreams, LOL. I think it's a good sign. 
I think it's a good sign. My girlfriend had a, a, a dream the other night that she uh, ha- had amnesia and there were all kinds of bloody towels around her and she had the feeling that she had killed somebody <clears throat> but didn't know what had happened. And she said that I was telling her, it's okay, don't worry about it, have compassion for yourself, and it made her feel better. Uh, This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Jane. She writes, today I had an experience which simultaneously made me chuckle and made my blood boil. I struggle with body dysmorphia, social anxiety, and depression, which have hugely impacted my self-esteem and self-worth over the years. I can honestly say listening to your podcast has made a huge difference in my life and helped me to accept the parts of me that I don't like while holding my head high and embracing the strengths that I have. Well, thank you. That I'm, I love hearing that. So I finally managed to find a job that suits me and I feel is the perfect amount of challenging and rewarding. I work as a support person for teens who have come out of the care system and are transitioning to adulthood and independent living. I can relate to some of their struggles and I love and admire their resilience and honesty. Anywho, this morning I was making the 45-minute walk to the train station on my way to work. I'm trying to limit my time on public transport, plus I find the walk clears my head. The streets were eerily quiet in my city in Ireland, where we have a lockdown due to the pandemic and only, quote, essential services are operating. I was wheeling my bright yellow mini suitcase along the cobblestone street. Uh, I'm working four days in a row and sleeping over where I work. From across the street, an elderly lady with a shopping basket shouts over to me, Enjoy your staycation! Her tone was sarcastic, and so I stopped in my tracks. I said, actually, I'm on my way to work. I'm a social care worker. She rolled her eyes, muttering something under her breath and kept walking. I shouted after her, not aggressively, but loud enough so that she could hear me. There's no need for that. You shouldn't make assumptions about people. I was fuming on the one hand that this total stranger had felt the need to cast aspersions on me, assuming I was ignoring the travel restrictions and having a leisurely vacation in the midst of the pandemic. On the other hand, I laughed at the audacity of this old lady who was bold enough to voice her opinions of her perceived wrongdoing. Mainly, I was proud of myself for speaking my mind and asserting my position. It was the first time ever I can think of that I felt confident or valid enough to take up space in this world and give the old biddy as much attitude as she gave me. I laughed to myself and rolled on down the hill. Thanks for doing the amazing work that you're doing, Paul. Stay safe, Jane. Thank you for that, Jane. I love the picture you painted, too, of the uh, cobblestone street in in Ireland. Uh, God, I just love when you guys fill out a survey and it just transports me to to a place other than my stinky bedroom. This is a happy moment filled out by Elle, and she writes, Waking up and hearing my baby singing to himself. It's so innocent and pure and adorable that even at 5 a.m., I'm okay with dragging myself out of bed. He always greets me with a huge smile and makes weird monkey noises when he sees me. I pick him up and cuddle with him on the bed for as long as he will let me, usually about 10 seconds before he crawls away. Oh, that is that is so adorable. This is a happy moment filled out by Emerson, Emerson Jacob, who uh, is trans non-binary, and they write, My happiest moment of my life was the five to six month high I rode after having top surgery. I knew I needed it, but I was not prepared for just how much I needed it. Like walking out of a bar and realizing the music was so loud you can't hear. Except it was walking out of the 22 years of body dysmorphia and realizing you thought it was normal. It was a literal and figurative weight off my chest, 10 pounds. I felt like I could finally breathe. The amount of euphoria and bliss I experienced was like nothing I'd ever felt before. It was the first time in my life that I felt like me. In some ways, it hasn't worn off. I still smile every time I see my scars on my chest and I'm reminded of my journey. I get giddy with excitement when I get a chance to show off my awesome designer chest. Maybe it will wear off eventually, but I hope it never does. I hope I never get tired of seeing my authentic self. Thank you for that. That's... That is just beautiful. There, There is something so pure and 
it's just so great about finding more authenticity in ourselves or, or seeing it in somebody else. In my support group, sometimes somebody will do some deep inner work just over the course of a couple of days or a week, and they'll come in to our meeting, and there's a light on in their eyes. They're able to make eye contact. There's, it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing, amazing to see. I never get tired of it. This is from the love survey filled out by Pax, and they write, When I get anxious, I pace around the house. When I get into these moods, it feels like I'm frantically treading deep water in darkness. The beacon that grounds me is my dog. I love it when I look down and see she's following me, tail wagging because she thinks we're playing a game, panting because she was following me the entire time. I love her. Oh, thank God for Gracie. Thank God for Gracie. She is, there must be 20 times a day when I just, just the feelings of fear and dread and, and catastrophizing just overwhelm me. And I just have to call her into the room and cuddle up on the couch with her and kiss her for five minutes. And then I always feel better. This is a happy moment filled out by Gav. And she writes, um... This past seven years of my life have been hard. As time went by, life became unbearable. In an effort to resolve this at the start of this year, I gave myself a deadline. If my condition doesn't improve over the next three years, I will end my life. I started with self-help suggestions. Eating healthier helped me function, but it wasn't enough, wasn't enough to function effectively. Exercising helped prevent stress, but it wasn't enough to help me sleep soundly. Socializing helped me maintain good relationships, but it wasn't enough to lift my spirits. Working a job I'm passionate about helped me find meaning, but it wasn't enough to keep me alive. At a loss, I sought professional help. A few GPs eliminated some common physical causes of my symptoms, but I failed to work with them for long enough to find a cause and treatment. A few psychologists helped to educate me on the details of my condition and guide me through self-help suggestions, but I failed to connect with them enough to admit I was still struggling. A psychologist with whom I found a strong professional rapport helped me feel supported, but it wasn't enough to keep me afloat. A new diet carefully monitored by specialists, helped improve my gastrointestinal comfort, but it wasn't, wasn't enough to increase my energy levels or improve my blood test results. And finally, a kind and empathetic GP, and in an enormous stroke of that GP's professional experience and luck, the second antidepressant we tried, I'm not even one-third of the way to my deadline and my condition has improved far beyond what I had imagined for the first time in seven years. I feel normal. My blood test results are normal. My psychological test results are normal. All the actions I took pushed me closer to the one thing that pushed me into normalcy. It wasn't quite enough to reverse my acceptance of death should it come to me, but it was enough so that I won't be seeking death as a final treatment, nor will I be content to accept death if I have any strength left to fight it. I can now honestly say I'm happy to be alive, and I intend to keep it that way if death doesn't, make, if death doesn't take me sooner. I plan to celebrate my continuing life in three years' time. Please feel free to join me. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for that. And what I love about this is just your dogged determination to keep seeking. That is one of the greatest gifts that that we can be given by the universe is is to be a seeker. It's so easy when when we're depressed and or numb to just endure day after day after day, hoping that things change without trying anything to make things change. And you know, part of what sucks about that is when we do put effort into things that we hope are gonna make the difference and they don't. But what I found is that when I do take those steps, you know, be it exercise or diet or therapy or psychiatrist or 900 different meds is that at least I can say to myself, okay, I'm doing my part. The rest is up to the universe. So at least 
that one voice in my head that tells me I'm lazy and I'm not doing anything. At least that is, is quiet. So the doom can have the floor. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by uh, William, and he writes, I love looking at a basket full of laundry that I've managed to sit down and fold. It's simple, but it proves to me that I do have some self-control and order somewhere in my life. That's a great one. Thanks for that, William. This is from the Loves survey filled out by Jay Chrism, <clears throat> and they write, the moment when coming home from a long day of work, the moment when coming home from a long day at work, seeing my cats at the top of the stairs, hearing them meow, telling me it's time to feed them, knowing I'm working for them, keeps me going and motivated. Walking into my room and when pulling a blanket onto myself, still able to smell the scent of a candle I'd lit earlier, only to have the smell remain in the sheets of my bed. Driving home from work in my car alone, able to blare whatever music I want and just talk to myself fear of judgment and just a moment to express myself freely. Thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by Kat. <laughs> she writes, nervous poos. Being nervous sucks, but the giant poop you take is too cleansing not to appreciate. That's a great one. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by Mermaid Hair, and she writes, I love having long, wavy, curly hair. For a long time, I hated it, but now it's my favorite part of my body. I love how it feels underwater when it's soft and silky and weightlessly flowing behind me. I love the gentle pull of a comb through long, wet, perfectly untangled hair. Thank you for that. I've always kind of... Uh, thought to myself, I don't know if always is the right word, but often thought to myself, hey, what if I just let my hair grow out? What would that What would that look like? But I don't know. There's that, that kind of ugly in-between stage. Uh, I don't know. This is from the love survey filled out by Natalie. She writes, I love when my dog Francie climbs halfway up the couch next to me and looks at me with her sad lab eyes and won't move until I've hugged her for several minutes. I love when I look out my bedroom window and I can see the chickens watching me and listening to my conversations as if they were watching the monkeys at the zoo. I love when my other dog, Jacques, Jacques farts super loud and it sounds like when you squeeze the end of a balloon and let the air out. And I love it when my boyfriend rolls over and hugs me super tight in his sleep. Oh, those are great. Thank you for those. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by, I think it's a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a mentally ill social worker. And she writes, I spent much of 2017 and 2018 in psychiatric hospitals. And I guess it would be an awfulsome moment in a residential treatment center. The psych ward became my second home. I was there so much that my phone thought my local hospital was my actual home. After a lot of hard work, the right medications, support groups, and surrounding myself with supportive people, I was able to recover. A big piece of my recovery was finding a new job in my field and getting back to doing what I love. I'm a social worker. Recently, one of my clients was psychiatrically hospitalized, and today there was a meeting at the hospital. It occurred to me as I walked through the all-too-familiar locked doors that this was the first time I'd been in a psych ward in months, and even better... I wasn't the patient. I've come to a place in my recovery where I can genuinely help other people again. I'm so thankful for the providers I worked with, and I hope my work is a way for me to give back to the system that brought me out of the depths. Oh, man, that is so much good stuff in there, especially the, the meaning and purpose that, that you found in taking what was tragic and painful for you and, and using it to bring yourself a, a, a sense of purpose and to, and to help people around you. And that's one of the things that's so great about recovery and support groups is, you know, we roll in there just wanting to not die. And then we come to find all of these great byproducts that we could never imagine that make life feel 
so different. Yeah. Oh, man. I I don't know what to say about what's going on right now, and I'm just not, I'm not gonna, because I'm gonna probably go off on an angry tirade, and I, and I don't want to be that person. Because um, deep down, I'm scared. I'm scared that, uh, that the catastrophizer in my brain is actually accurate, and it's only a matter of time until <laughs> the armed hordes are knocking at the door and taking all my canned goods and, <laughs> oh my God. I need to go put my virtual reality goggles on and shoot some zombies. So if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, oh my God, you're so not alone. This is such an important time for us to be kind to ourselves and just to try to find the love wherever it is and to not demonize other people because I'm finding myself doing that all the time, just filling myself with temporary hate and resentment and it's like a bad drug high and um, it's just it's just not it's not healthy so all of that to, is to say good luck to you God bless um, but you're not alone and thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.